So one of the most famous clocks in all of the city sits over what used to be the L.S. Ayers building. I, I think it turned into Carson's at one point. Sadly, it's empty now. It was part of Circle Center. Uh, but it's been a building that's been in downtown Indianapolis for a very long time. And right on the corner of that building is this clock. And on that clock, if you know this very well, if you've been around Indy very long, sits a little cherub right on top of that clock during the holiday season. I like the story that nobody really knows where he comes from and nobody really knows where he goes to. I like to imagine that in the middle of the night as we're getting into the holiday season, the cherub just sort of shows up on his own. Of course, somebody's got it somewhere. I don't know how that works, but I love that. And I love how important that clock is. There's something about that clock. Now, maybe you've walked downtown and you've come under that clock and you never even noticed it was there. Maybe it's one of those things that you just ha have an idea that, yeah, maybe I know where that clock is. Every year, I always put the cherub as the background of my phone. There's something about it. I think it's the tradition. I think it's something about the history. I think it's something about the way that that cherub has watched over people in downtown for a century. They've watched people scurry from place to place, hurrying up, trying to, especially in the holidays, get their presents. And I, I realize today we live in an Amazon world. We don't go downtown. We don't stare at the windows like we used to. We don't go from building to building, right? People don't do that anymore with all their bags and carrying all their stuff. There was an era where that was the reality. But the cherub continues on. The cherub lives on. and He sits on that clock, sort of, sort of as a relic to say, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. I'm always watching over you. And in some ways, he represents what the clock represents, time. That as much as we try to get more time or get away from time or spend our time, time is this thing that just simply won't go away. The reality of time slipping away, it doesn't go away. Time just keeps on moving. And that clock asks, kind of invites us to ask a question. It's probably the most famous question of all time, and we all know it because we've all said it. What time is it? Most of us are fearful of walking up to a stranger, even in Indiana, of walking up to a stranger and starting a conversation, unless you're in line at Target, then everybody does it. But for the most part in Indiana, we're not, we're not really willing to just walk up to somebody on the street and be like, hey, how's it going? What's going on today? What are you up to? That's weird. But you will walk up to a total stranger if for some reason you don't have your phone or watch or something. And you walk up and you say, could you give me the time? What, what time is it? We're all comfortable asking that. But I, but I want to tell you something. That, that question is probably the most famous question of all time. It's the most popular question that people ask. The clock sitting there with the cherub on it is probably the biggest reminder of time and of this question, what time is it? But here's the problem. Clocks with cherubs on them. Phones that have the time on them. Watches that give you the time. As you ask that question, what time is it? It kind of forces you into the most depressing reality about yourself. You're running out of time. I bet you didn't think you'd come to church and hear an incredibly depressing message as we go into the new year about the reality that you're running out of time. But if you think about it, as we go into the new year, we're all thinking about that. In a couple of days, we're going to have this reality that our calendar, the pages have slowly started to disappear, right? Then we start counting down the days until the new year. In a few days, we're going to all stand around and try to stay up late and watch a stupid ball drop in New York City 
and count it down. And if you're awake, you're probably out loud going to count it down with all these people. And you're going to watch the seconds slip away from this year. Now, sometimes countdowns are positive things. Sometimes we think of countdowns uh, to weddings. We think of countdowns until our baby's going to be born. We think of countdowns until, goodness, we can start that new job, right? And we count down the days and the seconds until that new year or new job or new marriage or whatever it is, until those things happen, right? That is loud today, is it not? They are really enjoying VeggieTales. But we count down, right? But here's the other thing about it, though. There comes a time in your life, and some, for some of us it's different than for others, that that becomes a depressing reality. Because your countdown isn't your countdown until something happening. Your countdown is that you realize, I'm counting down to the rest of my life. At some point we reach the other half of life and we realize we have less time than we had at the beginning. See, sometimes we think, oh, what's it be like to be 16 or 18 or 21 or 30? Maybe even to say, maybe I'll be respected when I get into my 40s, right? Then you hit that place, then you go, wait a second. This is all going backwards the other direction. I am running out of time. And here's what's going to happen. If we're not careful about our time, it is going to be one of our biggest regrets. But here's what I know about time. You can redeem it. You can't get back lost time. But you can use the rest of the time that you have wisely. And that wisely used time will always outweigh all the lost time you've had. This morning I want to look at a psalm. It's in Psalm 90. I'm going to read it real quick and then I'll give you the context so we can understand what's happening here. Psalm 90 says this. Lord... You have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before us, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, the Psalms are like songs. They're poems. They're, people would sing this. I can't imagine singing this song, by the way. I put a death metal beat behind it. But this is what is going on in this song. It, it just, there's so much there, and it's so kind of dark and kind of rich, right? Now, the person who wrote this, this is where this gets fascinating. This is attributed to Moses. Now, Moses is a familiar story. Because in movies like the Ten Commandments, so even if you don't really, haven't read the Exodus uh, book in the Bible, you probably have an idea who Moses is. But it's always good to have a refresher, okay? 
So I'm just going to give us a refresher about who Moses is. If you want to go back and read it, you're going to go to the book of Exodus. You can just read through Exodus and you'll discover the life of Moses. But let me get us a refresher to help us understand what is it about Moses that he writes something like this? And what does it have to teach us? Now, during the time of Moses' birth, uh, the Israelites were living in slavery in Egypt. But much to the Pharaoh's dismay, the Israelites were growing in their population. So Pharaoh sort of looked around as these Israelites were in his uh, world and looks around and kind of says, hey, do you guys start to notice that there's a lot less Egyptian and a lot more Israelites? And he says, this is sort of becoming a problem. He, he becomes a little nervous about the reality that all of a sudden he's going to be outnumbered. So he does something about it. In Exodus 1, 11 through 12, this is what it says. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. Man, this could be the story of the world, couldn't it? That people look and say, we're supposed to be in charge. We're supposed to be the ones that are ruling here. What are we going to do about these people? Well, let's make them slaves. That's what he says. He says, so we put, make them slaves. We're going to oppress them with forced labor. And then he goes on and it says, well, during forced labor, what did these guys do? It says, they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. So they had a job for them to do as their slave labor. But listen what, listen what verse 12 says. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. The more that the Pharaoh tried to put them down in their place, the more the population increased. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. I sort of just try to imagine Pharaoh. But he looks around and he's in his board meeting with his other uh, Pharaoh helper people. And he looks at them, you know, and he's kind of like, listen, guys, we got a real problem here. I got a solution. We're going to make them slaves. That should help. That'll solve the problem. There's no way they're going to multiply with this. Well, he looks around. He realizes that didn't work. So he comes up with a plan. It's pretty awful. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Pharaoh goes to this place that's just dark, it's just awful. He says, let's just get rid of them. That's the solution. So you can imagine if you were a mother during this time, and you hear this order come out, what must you be thinking? Some of us anticipate we count down until a child is born. And I always imagine Moses' mother, as she's counting down, and she's seeing the clock in a completely different way, isn't she? She gives birth to baby Moses. And she says, what am I going to do? She tries to hide him for a while, like any mother would do. And then she says, I have to save him. The only way to save him is to separate him from me, so she puts him in a basket. She drops it in the reeds by the Nile River and just kind of sets it there to float away. Pharaoh's daughter ends up discovering this basket. She looks at it and says, what are we going to do? There's the law, there's the rules, but she's Pharaoh's daughter. She can kind of do her own thing. So she says, well, find an Israelite who can nurse this baby. I love this part of the story, that they find Moses' mom. And again, can you imagine that she's nursing him? And she's counting down to the reality at some point that Moses is going to get old enough. She's going to have to, he's going to walk away, right? 
So as we go on in the story, listen what happens here. In his late or early 20s, Moses realized that he was a Hebrew, and all the Hebrews were slaves, and he didn't like how they were being treated. So in retaliation, Moses goes off and he kills one of the Egyptians. He flees for his life. He ends up in the wilderness as a fugitive. And there he met a family of shepherds. He met the, the main shepherd, the, the, the kind of the um, uh, chief of this area, meets uh, his daughter. They get married. Moses raises a family. Moses become, becomes a shepherd. For 40 years he lives this out. And imagine this. So here's this guy who started out his life, a life that probably shouldn't have been, he ends up in, in this place where, he, where he's got some power, but he looks and says, I don't like this. This isn't the way people should live. He kills somebody. He has to travel away. He ends up in the middle of nowhere. He's tending these sheep 40 years, day in, day out, day in, day out, probably thinking, my life is coming to a close. You can assume that he's probably in his late 50s, maybe 60s. He's seeing the end of life in front of him. He's probably thinking, I'm going to retire, sit back, be finished with all of this. I've raised my sheep. I'm done with my thing. Then God comes to him and says, I have a plan for you. I have a purpose for you, Moses. I want you to go, and I want you to help me rescue the Israelites to free them from slavery. (laughs) He says, what? At my age? He starts to question his capability. He gets called to do this. So he uses his time that he's got left to make an impact, to make a difference, to lead his people out of slavery. And with all of that as a backdrop, don't you think that Moses probably has a pretty good perspective on time? So we don't know when. We don't really know the details on some of this, but we know that eventually this song is written. Somewhere, maybe Moses reflected on his perspective, shared these words, sang this prayer over his people. But at some point, this song becomes a song of Moses. In the book of Psalms, and we find these words, and in this, Moses gives us an incredibly valuable insight on time. I think that Moses' experience with his life And Moses' incredible experience with his calling with God has positioned him in a place to be able to give some advice to us about what it looks like to redeem our time. So let's walk through this because this is some, there's some really cool stuff here. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Throughout all generations before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And I love this. He does not start out with himself, does he? He doesn't start with human time. He doesn't say from my birth to my death. He doesn't start with eyes or me's. He starts out with God. He puts God in a perspective here. He says, while everything can seem fleeting in life, God is everlasting. He says, well, everything else seems like it just goes and flows and changes and moves and shifts. God is still there. Now, of course, he has this perspective because the Israelites were slaves for hundreds of years. 
They felt like God was silent, that he had disappeared. Yet God comes to them and says, I'm going to rescue you out of slavery. I'm going to take you from here, and I'm going to rescue you. He comes to Moses after he's been hanging out for 40 years, just tending sheep, and says, I'm going to call you to go and make an impact, to bring your people out of slavery, to make a difference, to, to, to help me call these people into the people they're supposed to be. He says, man, he said, look, my life seems fleeting. He said, the years that went by that these people were just building these cities seems fleeting. But God was always there. That God was still there. That in his time, he was still there. He says, if anything, I can trust. Then he says this. He says, you've been our dwelling place. Now, the Israelites didn't have a home when Moses wrote this. They lived in tents as they wandered in the desert. And they're surrounded by all kinds of uncertainty. But Moses realizes, he says, but you can trust. You can trust. That tent that you have, it looks like it could just blow away at no time, you know, just at any point. He said, that's not the way God is. God is like a dwelling place. The foundation. A place you can live. A place you can rest. That's something they weren't expecting. That's not something that they thought could happen. Moses was certain trusting in God. Then... Only then does he move and he switches the perspective, okay? So we go to verse 3. You turn people back to dust. Moses must have watched Lord of the Rings a lot. Because he says, return to dust, you mortals. And I always sort of try to imagine that with the deepest Lord of the Rings voice that I possibly can. I don't know how Moses was saying this or doing this. I don't know how he thought about it. But it just gives it that richness. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night, yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning, and the morning it springs up new, but by evening it's dry and withered. And here's what he's saying. He's saying no matter who you are, no matter how cool you are or famous you are in the end, we know this, you're going to return to dust. Moses compares life to a watch in the night which is only about three hours, which has to be making people kind of a little nervous about time, right? He says to God, a thousand years is like three or four days. He says, man, in God's perspective, your life is like that. It's here, and then it's gone. He says, you're so focused on being cool or being famous or being somebody. He said, but the reality is it's gone, just like that. Now, Moses' point isn't that your life doesn't matter. His point is that your life is so brief and common that to try to make it meaningful on your own doesn't make any sense. You don't have enough time to try to make it meaningful on your own. He says, what if you put it in the perspective and the context of God's story? Moses. Moses. They made movies about Moses, one of the most influential people in history. Even if you don't know the Bible, you probably have heard the word Moses, he says, it isn't about me. It's about everlasting to everlasting God at the center of the story. And then he goes on. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before us, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. And we finish with a moan. Isn't that the most positive grouping of sentences you have ever heard in your life? It's amazing, right? We don't like words like this, do we? I started to count all the words that as I read it, I went, I don't want to read that out loud. 
anger, terrified, indignation, iniquities. He even throws out secret sin. I'm like, calm it down. Like, back it down. Like, I know this goes to 11, but make it at 5, okay? So he just brings it out here, right? And it starts to feel like a math problem of judgment, right? I thought about that. It's kind of like, okay, so we take God's anger and his terror and his indignation, and we add that together. That must equal my secret sins and God's wrath. Like, that's what I start to read this, and it starts to feel like, but that's not what he's saying here. I, I want us to help us understand what's being said here because it matters for us as we begin to think about our time. Remember, this is written thousands of years ago. People wrote different. They said things different. Then we're trying to translate it to English. So when it feels kind of heavy and weird and dark, there's always something being said here. Peel back the layers of that weirdness on this. And here's what we start to see. Even with the time that we've been given, we make a mess of our time. Even with the time that you have been given, you have a tendency to make a mess with your time, don't you? That's what he's getting to. He says, here are these Israelites who were saved by God from slavery. They go, they go into the desert, and they make a mess of things. And they're, they're mad, and they're, they're annoying. They question God. We all do the same stuff. He says that in our lives, we make a mess of things. We have all this time, and we just make a giant mess of it. See, these guys are grumbling. They had arrogance. They had rebellion. They ended up with time wasted away. So this is the context. He looks and says, look, remember he's singing this over the Israelites. And he said, this is what we've done. We've entered the desert that should have taken us 11 days to cross. Y'all made it so messy it took 40 years. Good job. Right? He says, even the time that you've been given, even the calling that you've been given on your life, even the grace that you received from God and his love, his protection, you squandered it. So that's what he's saying to us. That even with the time we've been given, we have a tendency to make a mess out of our time. And before we know it, it's gone. So he goes on. He, he kind of sets that as sort of the, the thing. He wants to, he's trying to bring you into it. You feel the tension now? Do you feel that tension in your life that even with the time you've been given, sometimes you just make a mess out of it? So he goes on. He says, our days, they may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. He says, so if you're lucky, you might live that long. Again, positivity. Thank you, Moses. Then he says, but yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow. For they quickly pass and we fly away. And he says, even with a good life, things just aren't that good, are they? I told you, positivity here. Now this is the setup. See, Moses has been calling us in with this song. And like any good song, it kind of brings us into it. And he says, you make a mess out of your time that you don't have a lot of. He said, you have a tendency to squander what you have. He said, and then look, and even if you do live a long life, he said, it's a mess anyways, isn't it? It's not easy. It's not always good. Sometimes it sucks. He says, that's what life is. He said, so, so what do we do about it? What are we supposed to do with that? Then he says this verse. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Dude, that is a wild sentence. 
That sentence makes no sense. It is the best translation of the Hebrew, being faithful to what the words are that the translators can come up with. But it's still awkward, isn't it? Look at this. If only we knew the power of your anger. Man, that's, again, it's uncomfortable, right? (coughs) Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. So it looks weird, it looks strange, but if written by us today, okay, I'm going to do a little paraphrase here. This is what it might look like. If we could see God as he is, we would give him the reverence he is due. If we could see God as he is, we would give him the reverence he is due. Now Moses gets this. Moses went to get the Ten Commandments. Moses went on the mountain of God. Moses experienced God in such a way that people looked at him and said, Moses, what happened to your hair and your face? Did you see God? And he's like, I did. You don't want to go up there. He understands, like, if you saw who God is, like, this is one of those moments where it's just too hard to explain. He says, guys, if you, if you even, <laughs> if you experienced a little bit of God, you wouldn't know what to do with it. I, here's what I'm going to do. I have never looked in the face of God. I've never heard the voice of God audibly like Moses did. I never had a Ten Commandments hand, handed to me that were apparently inscribed with lightning. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to trust Moses on this one. I'm going to go ahead and say, I bet Moses knows what he is talking about. That if I only knew a little bit of who God is, I would show him the reverence he is due. Now see, the ancient people use words like anger and wrath and fear. It's their context that they use to describe God. We use words like what? Eternal and perfect and awesome. But they still fall short, don't they? When we worship, we try to say words that we know are true about God, but don't they still fall short? That's what Moses is saying. You can try to describe God. You can try to connect with your understanding of God. He said, but you just can't. You just won't. Now, with all of that, all of that context, he says if we could see clearly, but we can't, what will we do? He says, if you could see clearly, but you can't, what would you do? He goes on and he says, teach us to number our days. In light of what you are doing, teach us to live as if your days are numbered. And see, we're all doing this, aren't we? So I talked about at the beginning. We're all counting down the end of the days with anticipation Another year is coming to a close. And we start making lists, don't we? Things we accomplished. We think about our things we got right, that, we, that maybe our successes. But then if we think about our successes and our accomplishments, we're probably going to think about what we failed to accomplish. We're probably going to think about the things that we have regrets about. And we see that we're running out of time in a new year. We see that we're running out of time. The 2019 is coming to a close and all those great plans you had at the beginning, you say, I'm running out of time on those. That little cherub sits on that clock counting things down, mocking us of the reality that we're running out of time. And this is a problem, isn't it? We don't get that time back. 
Have you ever tried to ask for a refund on lost time? Once it's spent, it's gone. And some of us are very aware of the ways that we have lost time. We can think about the things that we put energy and effort into on the other side of lost time. And here's what we can do. And then I'm going to close. We can either have a lot of regret about it, or we can see this as an opportunity, an opportunity to start over. And I think that's what Moses was trying to do. He was saying, look, you've made a mess out of your time, that you don't have a whole lot of time to begin with. He says, so rather than regretting the time that you've lost, he said, why don't you do something with your time? And then he gives us the clue how to do it. He says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So here's how I wrote this down. I said, I don't know how to make wise decisions. I just don't. I'm a human and I'm a dude. I don't always make the best decisions on my own. Unless I make them in the context of what God is doing. I have never, well, let me rephrase this. I think I've been better about making decisions when I put them in the context of what God is doing. I believe that we will make better decisions financial, parenting, with our careers, relationally, if we would ask ourselves, how much time do I have left? If I would number my days, I would probably make better decisions. See, we can't get the years that are behind us, but we can spend the rest of our life with the end in mind. And this is so powerful, and this is what I wrote down that I think is powerful. Time used wisely always outweighs lost time. Time used wisely will always outweigh lost time. I think this is what Moses is trying to teach us. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. See, God has given you a life, a life for purpose. And this is the key to giving our lives purpose. It's the key to moving beyond a life of regrets about our time. So ask yourself, what would change? What would change in my life if I was counting down how much time I had? How would I spend time with my kids if I thought about that I don't have a whole lot of time left? If I downloaded that app that all I have to do is put in Emily's graduation day and it shows me every day that I have left with her until graduation, talk about depressing. Talk about a great opportunity to find out how to use my time wisely. I'm way less likely to go, you know what, I'm going to just do me right now. I'm just going to worry about my thing right now. If I was living with the end in mind, I think the last thing I would do is my thing, right? Here's some questions I have. And our kids helped us with this, I think. Would you have more fear or more courage? Would you pursue God-given dreams or would you avoid them? If you lived with the reality that you had a limited amount of time, would you hate more or would you love more? Would you become more greeter or become more generous? Would you grow in your relationship with God or would you avoid it? And see, perhaps in that list you heard some of the regrets in your own life the way that you spent your God-given time. But it's never too late to start over. 
the gift of Jesus is the gift of grace. Our lives aren't defined by how we spent them, but by what we will do with what is next. We can place our trust in Jesus. We can discover new life and new beginnings. That, that is what Jesus comes to bring us, making most of the time that we have left. So, Father, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for an opportunity to celebrate what you have done through Southeast, what you've done through our individual lives. But God, we pray that we would continue to number our days, that we would continue to see the ways, God, that you want to move in our lives, not just here at Southeast, but us as individuals. God, the purpose that you have for our time. God, help us to be people who live with the end in mind. God, help us to ask the hard question, what is it that I'm doing with my time? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.